This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, where I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, as well as product design. The basic idea behind Launchpad is that we hope to help you to become a better entrepreneur. We really expect that there are three audiences for our show. Some of you are yourselves entrepreneurs. And so we hope really to speak directly to you. Some of you are thinking you might want to take the plunge, and we hope to give you a realistic window into the world of entrepreneurship. And probably most of you are just interested in what's new and interesting out there in the world of business. And hopefully we deliver on that as well. I co-host Launchpad with my friend Rob Connybeer. Rob is Managing Director of Shasta Ventures, a leading Silicon Valley venture capital firm. And Rob and I broadcast variously from San Francisco, Seattle, and Philadelphia. Today, I'm at the Wharton School campus in the city of San Francisco on a, on a beautiful day. The basic uh, format of the show is is most weeks we we host three or four entrepreneurs. We do long format interviews, and we try to get right into the weeds on what they're trying to do, the challenges they're facing, and then Rob and I look for opportunities to extract tools and methods that might be useful to you. So we've got a great show today, but to start off the show, I'm joined on the line by Ryan Sim, who's Managing Director and Co-Founder of We The People. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Carl. Great. Hey, where are you calling us from? I'm calling you from St. Louis. St. Louis. Okay, I saw you guys were headquartered or got your start in in Singapore, so I wondered just how many thousands of miles we were working with. So it only looks like we're about 1,500 miles away, not uh, 7,000. Not too far away. Okay, so the the URL, let me just point our our listeners to your website. The company name is We The People, and we will learn in a, in a couple minutes about why that where that name comes from, but the website is WTP Store, and WTP stands for We the People, so WTPStore.co, so leave off that last M, it's just .co, WTPStore.co. Ryan, give us the elevator pitch for We the People. All right. So We The People is the only store in the world to exclusively retail, promote, and support all things crowdfunding. We have four stores in Singapore, one store in Korea, one store in Malaysia. So basically, our plan is to unite all creators, all crowdfunding creators, into one platform and help them retail worldwide. All right. So there's a lot there to unpack. Let's just start with the customer experience. So... You have a store in St. Louis. Uh, tell us, tell us what the what the store is like, and what I would see if I walked in. When you walk into a We the People store, you'll be in, immediately greeted with bright lights, very nice tables, but you will not see a lot of products um, on shelves. Not like your average store where they stockpile a lot of products on shelves. It's not like that. You'll be walking into what looks like 
a museum of products. So it's very interesting, basically. When you see the products, you, you will see information of how they came to be, um, the crowdfunding statistics, how much they raised, by how many backers, and you'll see the product there. Immediately, as one of our staff will come and talk to you and say, hey, have you, have you been here before? So here's the experience. The way the people experience begins here. Our staff will tell you everything you need to know about the product, not just the product, but the creators behind them, the, the efforts they went through to make something happen. Basically, they will tell you the story of how it came to be. That's the most important thing for us. So when, when we started the store, the issue was that retail was a bit difficult to do because salesmen were having a hard time converting. And the problem is that they cannot convey the same passion as the creators, but we managed to find a way to do the same thing, to push the passion across, to make consumers feel like they're talking to the creators of the products themselves. All right, so give us an example of what a current hot seller is at We The People. Wow, I have too many. <laughs> so I, let, let me see what I can focus on one. Um, okay, let's do this. We have the Mojix Power Bagel. Basically, this was, this was innovated by a 19-year-old girl from Singapore. Her name is Asa, and she wanted to reinvent how the power strip was made. So basically, a power strip in the U.S. is a long strip, and we all know we have that bumping issue when we have too many plugs. It makes, it makes it very difficult to plug multiple plugs into that thing. And she looked at that and said, I can do so much better. Right. So what she did was she made her own. Instead of a power strip, she made a circle. That's why it's called the power bagel. Mm -hmm. So on the circle, your plugins are on the perimeter of the circle, on the circumference, I mean. So you plug your plugs in in a circle instead of a row. So there will be no more clashing issue. On top of that, she added in two more USB sockets. So, well, you can, use, you can charge your phones. And here's the, can, the, the cherry on top. The part where you plug the device into the wall, much like the power strip, that part can be converted for international use. That means now you have an international power strip. So i got to ask you, what sure. is it about power strips that seems to so resonate with consumers? It, as I recall, the one of your ill-fated, uh, an ill-fated company in a related, you know, related space, Quirky, um, their largest selling product ever was a power strip that was reconfigurable. What is it about power strips that people seem to resonate with so much? It seems to be the whole convenience aspect. Yeah. Um, we have two different target groups here. So in the U.S., when we sell the, this power bagel, it's more for day-to-day -day use. But whereas the power bagel is actually made for travel. So... In the market for all travel adapters, you would know this, right? A travel adapter is usually this big, clunky-looking thing, mm -hmm. correct? So now you have this thing where it's a travel adapter as well, but instead of one plug-in like a regular travel, travel adapter has, it now has four different plug-ins. So that would mean, like, if you go on a trip with a partner and you share a room, most of the time, each of you would need to bring your own travel adapter, which mm. is an issue. Um, these products are quite selfish, right? Um, now you don't. One, one is enough because one will take two laptops, two phones, 
a camera battery charger, and you still have one more spare plug. That has never been done before, and that provided so much value to everyone, and the price was good as well. All right, so Ryan, you're doing a good job of conveying what you described, which is being a product champion for a product that given us a feel for the inventor and for the origin story behind the product. About how many products would I find in one of your stores? Okay. Usually in one of our stores, you would find about a good offering of at least 40 different Mm -hmm. brands. Mm -hmm. Um, Each brand would have a bunch of products. Maybe one brand could have one. Another brand could have like 10 different different, uh, SKUs. So you would see quite a large amount, maybe a hundred different products. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something like that. Okay. So there's a hundred products in the store and you started out by saying that the store was not like a conventional store where I would see a lot of inventory, but does that mean that I typically cannot walk out of the store with product? Uh, is it just used as the bricks and mortar used to order the product or in fact, do you stock inventory and I can we, walk out with it? You can walk out with it immediately. Here's the sell. Here's what's so interesting about the whole crowdfunding space. So like things like Kickstarter, Indiegogo, or any other um, crowdfunding um, platform for that matter, when you pledge for a project and wait for it to happen, you've got to wait for quite mm. a few months. And there have been a lot of horror stories here where the product doesn't come or the product doesn't work. I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard about this before. So that was something that needed to be fixed. And we saw that as an opportunity as well. So we work with creators. Um, we buy inventory or we have it on consignment. Both ways, it's the same thing. So now a consumer can walk into a store and probably see the latest product online on, on crowdfunding and say, hey, what was in the store now? Okay, I can buy it immediately. And what's best is if anything goes wrong to that product, you can bring it back. We can fix it for you. Whereas online... Um, you you buy something online, the chances of you, or rather, it's quite difficult because you have to email the person and say, hey, something's wrong. It's not something that can be fixed immediately. And yeah. yeah the, the after-sales service is the most important thing for us. And here's the best part. The prices are more or less the same. As on the online original Kickstarter. Yeah. Right. So tell us, if I'm a, a consumer, an average consumer walking into one of your stores, how, how did I get there? Why did I come in the store and what was the attraction? I presumably, because your products are rotating so much, I presumably didn't come in there to find a power bagel. That's right. Okay, so here's the special thing. The configuration of the store is so much different from any other store you would see. Um, If anything, I think we kind of look like a Apple store, very similar in terms of... um, negative space so we have a lot of space Mm -hmm. and that's really important for us in the retail industry that's something we wanted to fix because it's always a information overload when you walk into a store and we want it to be a curated style like a museum instead you know more open more negative space for the mind to rest and understand and digest what's going on so if you walk by the store and you look at it you'll see oh my god what's going on inside here it's it's so bright it's well lit um products are all displayed and platformed. So it looks very interesting. Plus, um, the, the products kind of sell themselves in a way. We have a floating light bulb right in front of the, the shop. So that kind of brings in attention as well. 
And you mean literally a floating light bulb. Yes. That's one of the products Correct. that uh, you have, which is a light bulb that literally levitates. That's right. And the, yeah. the, the company behind it is called Flight, F-L-Y-T-E. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although I noticed you're you're out of stock on your website, so I'd have to come into the store to get one. I saw it on your website. It's very cool looking. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, but I guess the question I'd have about this, Ryan, I, I totally get the idea of it being an attractive place to come in. It's sort of like browsing the Kickstarter website, but in real life, which is even better. That's right. Uh, plus, I get to see the stuff as it actually came out, not as it was originally pro- promised. That's so that's right. kind of cool. But what fraction of customers who walk into your store actually buy something as opposed to just check out the museum? Let's see. We have a very high conversion rate. Um, let's see, out of 10 people that come to the store, a good four of them will buy something. Wow. Uh, that's that's quite high for a retail setting, um, and the people that don't buy, they will come back within the, within two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, this statistics does vary from from country to country. Uh, for example, right now in St. Louis, we see the same customers come back four to five times in a month, mm-hmm. which is phenomenal for us. In Singapore, a good customer comes back every one to two months. Yeah. And do they do these stores tend to be in malls? Yes, that's right. Uh yeah. we can't have I, I don't think a solo outlet somewhere along the street yeah. will work for us. It doesn't work that way for us. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, if if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM channel one thirty two. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Ryan Sim, who's the managing director and co founder of We the People. Uh, Ryan, tell us the origin story. Where did this idea come from? That's a good question. I'd love to tell that story. So I am also a, a creator on Kickstarter. I've been launching projects for the better part of five years. So we the people, we're only, we're only two and a half years old. So mm-hmm. a few years before that, um, that's where I discovered Kickstarter. And I actually launched a wallet, a wallet company then with my partner, Joel Liu, who is also a partner in We The People right now. So that's when I got introduced to crowdfunding and the magic of it. I didn't understand it when I launched last time, but when I finally launched my first campaign and was successful, I understood that, hey, this is, this is something that can be built. Okay, so that brings us, brings us forward uh, one to two years later. I've, after I've launched about three to four crowdfunding campaigns and was pretty successful with that. I tried to put my products into retail stores and it was very difficult because most of these retail stores, they were only interested in taking big brands because they would have to, well, the buyers would need to hit the KPIs. I totally understand that, but it's very difficult for a startup to convince uh, a company or retail company to hold your product and sell it. So eventually we did manage to get into a couple of stores, some good stores as well. But here's the problem. We thought we hit gold by getting into a good store, but no, it was not the case. Sales was horrible, actually. It was worse than we, we would have imagined. So, and comparing that to when we sold the products ourselves at pop-up events, like during pop-up events, I would sell maybe like 20 or 30 wallets and I would make a few grand, like two to three grand. But in a retail store, it, I maybe only make like two to 300 bucks a month, which was very, very big stock contrast. So, so we, dove, we had deep dive and try to understand why, why is it not selling? What's going on here? That's a good store. 
And then we realized that, hey, it's actually not so much the store, but more of the salespeople behind the brand. When I sold the product, I had the passion. I showed people, like, this is the whys, that this is why I made this, this is how I made this, right? But in a retail store, the salespeople don't really care so much about that. And they don't engage with customers. They don't bring forth that passion. So, and then one day we decided, hey, okay, hmm, we're having issues now. We can't, we can't sell. And we had a good opportunity to meet with my two other co-founders, um, Nisen Chan and Jay Kang. So Nisen is also a crowdfunding. He did socks on crowdfunding as well. And Jay Kang, he... Jay Kang basically, he was, he's not a creator, but he works with a lot of creators. He organizes markets to, to give creators a chance to sell in different places. So it was a good fit. And we had the idea of, hey, why don't we open our own crowdfunding store? We Googled, we checked, and something like that didn't really exist. And from there, we just took the plunge. Yeah. So let me, I want to ask a little bit about taking that plunge, but before I do so, just give us a sense. You said that when you were selling through a conventional retail store, if it's just sitting there on the, on the shelf, uh, you didn't move too many units. Give us a sense of how well I could do in your store. So if we take something like the Power Bagel, I'm not asking necessarily for your specific numbers, but how, how many units could I expect uh, to move in a store where you're really focusing on... Uh, displaying the the product. Okay, so I, I can give you some numbers. Let's see. Like the Power Bagel in Singapore alone, we sell about two to three hundred pieces a month. Yeah. Whereas when in other stores, I think they'll do like ten. Yeah. So yeah. So dramatically higher. I mean, it's like yeah, ten a day. It's very a different. Pretty good. Amount. Yeah. Pretty good velocity. That's yeah. right. And that's just per store, or rather per country per se. Yeah. So I want to take you back to the pivot you described. You had you had uh, crowdfunded your own uh, wallet brand. That's so right. you were on your way to being a, a product based company. That's right. And then you really changed your business model to being a retailer. Uh, tell me a little bit about that decision and how big a deal was it for you guys to change direction? Oh, well, actually, we didn't change direction. I'm, oh, I still have the previous company. Um, so right now I have two companies. Yeah, but I, come on, Ryan, you, you, you can't, you can't do a bunch of things super well. So I'm guessing you're really focusing your energies on we, the people now. That's right. That is very true. So, I mean, when we, when we saw the idea, we knew that, Hey, this is so much bigger and we could potentially help so much more people. Yeah. So, okay. Basically when we opened up the first store, right, during the first few months, that's when we had all our, all our questions answered. Like we realized that, hey, okay, now we have a very big opportunity to be able to help people more. We could be much more than just a retail store. We don't want to just be a retailer. We have, a, we have all this knowledge on crowdfunding. We have all this knowledge on helping creators um, sell their product and marketing it the right way. We wanted to share that resource. We wanted to make it um, a global thing. So through a conventional retail store, we started implementing way, different ways we could help creators. I think the first, first thing we put in progress was a way to physically help um, live campaigns. So for example, if you see a campaign on Kickstarter or Indiegogo, right? And, and it's live, it has like maybe 20 days to go. Let, let's just, for instance, 
say it's a bag, and you really like the bag, and but it's quite expensive. The first thing you think about is, huh, I wish I could see it first. So that's what we started doing. Um, we reached out to creators and said, hey guys, we have this space called We The People Store, and it's very interesting. We only retail crowdfunding stuff. But hey, we wanted to help you further. If you send us a prototype, we'll display it for you, and whoever walks into the store and sees it, we'll explain it to them and push them to your campaign page so that mm-hmm. they can back you. This has never been done before. And so far in the past, um, let's see, two years, we've helped uh, about almost 40 different campaigns. And of all 40, we've only, only, only two of them didn't hit their, their funding yeah. goal. And did you do that primarily as a way just to make the in-store experience more interesting and to better draw the connection to the crowdfunding platforms and the connection there? Or did you, or is there a business model directly in supporting those campaigns? So it's two ways, basically. Um, right now, up to now, it has been a free service. We want yeah. it out to help. Um, after a while, we realized that this could also be developed further if we had the resources to do it. So soon, sooner or later, there'll be a business model around it. It will be charged, but that would mean that we can offer 10 times more support. Yeah. Um, yes, that's going to happen. All right. Tell us how you, how do you pick what goes in the store? Oh, okay. That's a fun question. As much as possible, we want to represent all different types of campaigns. Um, Immediately, we had to we had to focus on stuff that's more physical because yeah. I mean it's a physical store, so it's a little bit difficult to sell stuff that's non-physical. So we try to have a good range of things. Um, in every location, there'll be different offerings. Most 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 to most, it will be the same, but there'll be some changes. For example, um, in St. Louis, right, we have less travel products because there'll be, there'll be less uh, international travel, so we don't need so much so much of that. Whereas in, in Singapore, it's more of an international place. We have more of that. Also, we work on segments uh, that we feel that are unrepresented. For example, women's innovative products. That's something that's coming up. Um, but not many people have, not many retailers have, have been pushing that out. So, like for example, we just brought in, maybe we brought in um, these shoes, heels, that are convertible. So they can go from three inch to one inch. That's something that um, we're trying to push out as well. Because most of our client, uh, our customer base has been so far men, um, 65% men uh, and 35% uh, women. So we felt, felt that women was a section that we could develop further. So it's funny, Ryan, you say that because I've been teaching product design for about 30 years. And I would say... In 25 of those 30 years, I've had a student team that were, has worked on that heels problem. So it's super cool that you've got something that actually works. I've never seen one that actually works. So yeah, that's about that. time, right? <laughs> uh, so let me shift gears just a little bit and say, you know, Singapore is a small country. Yep. And so you at some point probably thought about, okay, we got to go global. How did you think about that decision and how did you think about where to go? I wouldn't have guessed that St. Louis would have been the first uh, place I would have expanded globally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's my favorite question to answer as well. Um, so yes, we definitely had to go global because I mean, the model is working and we've been helping a lot of people. So all our KPIs have been met. 
and we knew that we could expand. Also, at the same time, um, every month we'll get like maybe 10 to 15 different inquiries about, hey, are you going to franchise the business? Are you going to open a store here or there? Um, and there were a lot of interested part, uh, parties that wanted to partner up with us and open stores in their regions, like Europe, Spain, or UK. We had a lot of that. And at that point in time, the, the first year in, we didn't have the infrastructure yet, uh, infrastructure ready to do that. Um, however, now, now, because of the sheer volume of people asking for it and wanting to do it, we decided, okay, let's do it. And um, that's why we opened up a store in St. Louis. Okay, why St. Louis? So basically, it's almost right smack in the center of the U.S. So we do have plans to open up more stores around the U.S. Having, having our headquarters in St. Louis does make a lot of financial sense as well because trucking is cheaper, logistics are cheaper. So it, that would mean that um, it's easier to supply product. It makes the model just stronger, basically. All right. So, last question for you, Ryan, before sure. we wrap up. What you, know, you mentioned uh, cheaper and affordability and the economics. What what have you done about financing this business? Retailing typically requires some investment to get it to get it going. All right. We've been mostly bootstrapped all the way. Has been bootstrapped. The model is we haven't had any significant investments or anything like that. It's mostly just ourselves. And in order to be able to do that, have you you mentioned this a little bit earlier? But the inventory have you typically uh, done that on fairly extended terms for the supplier, or even on consignment? Yeah, we have both models going on at the same time. Um, So I mean, it depends. So if it's a consignment model, that means there's less risk for us. That's Mm -hmm. true. Um, However, if if the products end up selling a lot and we know that, hey, we can take a risk on this one, we'll definitely buy and extend our margins a little bit more. All right. Well, Ryan, we're out of time, but uh, thanks so much for joining us. Super interesting. No problem. Anytime. Thank you for this. Sure. So once again, the website is, the company is We The People and the website is WTP Store. That's We The People, WTP Store. Dot C-O to C-O. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.